Blog Talk Radio. Dread Thorns is Arianta, book two of the Reciters of Candor, coming up next right here on The Right Stuff. Hi, and welcome to The Right Stuff. I'm the queen, Parker J. Thank you so much for joining me. Today, we're going to be talking to my returning guest co-host, Echo Chibler today, Joan Lightning. She is the author of the hot off the press release of Dreadthorns in Arianta, which is book two, or rather volume two, of the Reciters of Candor. Joan, thank you so much for being with me today. Well, thank you for having me. What's really exciting about this particular guest I have here with me is that she is hailing all the way from the UK. And the last time we talked to her was probably roughly 2018 when we talked about the first book in her series of the world of race. And then she's back again because she has expanded since then into this world that she just loves to just dabble her mind into. She has lots of books in this world. If you like fantasy with a high concept, magic, really interesting characters and the subtleties about the Christian faith interwoven within the tale, you're definitely going to love a Joan Lightning book. Make sure you go ahead, love on my sister and get your copy today. Before we talk to Joan, I want to give you an opportunity to follow us at pjcmedia.net and click that pink follow button. Subscribe to our YouTube channel at PJC Media. And if you want to support our ministry, go to patreon.com slash right stuff. So, Joan, without further ado, I want people to get to know a little bit about you. So go ahead, tell us about yourself. I'm 60 years old. I'm, an, I'm actually a professional archaeologist. I, I, I write my books in, in my spare time in the evenings and before I go to work. I'm a martial artist. I'm a photographer. Uh, I'm single, so you know, my time is my own. I, I, I like to fit it to all sorts of strange things. Uh, Knitting, spinning, writing, uh, doing what else? Yeah, yeah, I'm here in, not entirely sunny, Bedfordshire, in the middle of England. When you say that you are an archaeologist, what does that do? Or actually give us a visual of your day as an archaeologist. Right. I don't work on the field, in the field anymore. I used to when I was younger. I now... I work in an office. Uh, my job involves processing site surveys and editing site surveys to make them so they can be linked with databases with the finds and producing map-based illustrations for our client reports and for publication. Uh, so now, I use, sorry, I use also a lot you know, invite Adobe or what have you, produce a lot of illustrations. Now, as a martial artist, what color belt, I guess that's the word, are you? Um, I have two black belts, uh, Kung Fu and Tai Chi. I don't practice so much these days because my, the school I went to didn't get through COVID, so uh, our teacher teaches online now. It's not quite the same, but yeah, I, I do still try and practice as much as I can. Now, some of you may be remembering that we had Joan with us back in 2018, and during that time, we had the most interesting event happen during that time. And because Joan likes to put a little bit of magic in her story, and what had happened, it was the strangest thing. I will never forget it. Joan remembers because 
there were those in the U.S. who were so provoked by the idea of magic, and they immediately synchronized magic with satanic ritual <laughs> that they were jumping down her throat. And I remember telling Joan, Joan, you're going to get a lot of questions. People are going to just contact you because they're going to be very upset about what you wrote. And later on, Joan waited probably to what, two days, I think. I think you waited two days because everyone was so upset that she dared put magic in her novels. And no one wanted to ask her opinion. No one wanted to know what she was talking about. And that was one of the first times I had that experience with this weird um, superiority and hierarchy and knee-jerk reaction to speculative fiction. It's gotten better over the years, but just the word magic caused an uproar in that group. And there were others who follow right stuff who saw that uproar and were like, oh my gosh, you got to be kidding me. And even when I offered, Joan, I offered your email for people to contact you so they can ask their own questions and get their own information about you, no one did. And this is why I do this show, because I want to be able to support authors who are doing their good work as writers. And in fantasy, most people hear the word magic and think of satanic ritual, which is not the case. Your magic was based off a magic system of a gifting by the God figure in your world, you know. So for those of you, this knee-jerk reaction is not that type of magic. She's not sacrificing children and putting <laughs> blood over them. But, well, some some of them may die, but it's not it's not that. That's not happening. <laughs> so so that's just in the story. But yeah, I want you to just, you know, respond to that because it really was an eye opener. Maybe it's a US thing, maybe not so much a UK thing. Maybe it's a USC to have that knee jerk reaction so quickly. I I have encountered it occasionally in the UK. I, I think possibly people seem to be sensitive on slightly different things sometimes in the UK and the US. Uh, and plus, of course, in the UK, normally somebody I'm speaking to, say, in the church, they're, they're there. And we can, you know, they're actually, they're not hiding in another room and being rude, but not daring to speak to me to my face. And they're right there. We can, like, and I can explain what it is I mean in the context of my books by the word magic. And yes, the word sorcerer is in it. Um, and why I used those words, um, which I, in the context of the story, the magic is gifts that are given to the the good guys for the protection of their world. That's their job. They serve the Lord of Light, the God, and um, and He gives them these. And some of these gifts are analogous to the gift. Some of the gifts of the spirits. Not all of them, but some of them. Right, the gift of healing. Um, the thing I call gleaning will have some similarities to word of knowledge. But there are others, right, transmutation and translocation, which, again, they're not, they are just, you know, they can be in one place and then just imagine they're somewhere else and then they are. Um, but in in the book, these are gifts given to them by God for a specific purpose for the protection of their world. And I use the word magic. I mean, I often refer to the gifts in the book. But I also call them magic. And one reason I use the terms magic and sorcery and sorcerer is because these are words that are understood around the world, English speakers, uh, as meaning 
having to do with the supernatural. Um, for the unchurched, and I know this is this is controversial, but for the unchurched, anything to do with supernatural healing, you know, things that God does, miracles, evil prayer, to the unchurched, these things are actually us trying to perform magic. That, because to the unchurched, there is no difference. And so I use the term because it's a term that people will, they will look at, they will know it means something to do with that's not naturally possible in the normal world. And it was like, it's that or you invent a new word. And yeah, sometimes it's just easier to use what's already available. And it is readily catched and people do understand there are nuances to fantastical magic in a fantastic and fantastical book you know but i just wanted to clear the air right away just in case we have someone say anything but your world of race has been with you for a very long time and as you write these these books how have you grown as an author can you tell the difference in your writing from the first book to what you're working on right now yeah i I think i can see the difference i I hope as i have grown a lot better um I've learned so much because I started writing in 2008, which um, is a very long time ago. Um, and yeah, I, I, especially because I'm in several groups on Facebook for writing and the share snippets and the share advice. And, and I think I have got an awful lot better, I hope, at trying to get into my characters' heads so that you are, as you read, more in the character rather than just being told about the character. You see what I mean? The whole show, not tell. Okay, I don't entirely agree with the must-show, never-tell control. Yeah, I think it is. the. I I understand exactly where you're coming from because show, don't, don't tell is a mantra now. And I get it. We do want to make sure that we immerse the reader into our world building. However, there are times when you need to say it was raining. (laughs) <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, I mean, yeah. I mean, especially with epic fantasy, when you are, you've got a lot of world building in there as well. So the books tend to be long. And um, you don't necessarily, for every scene, want to spend 20 paragraphs describing in minute detail something that could be moved. You, you, can, you can get across in a simple verb or a simple adjective. Especially if it's something that's not that important, you know, if it's if it slows the scene down. Now, as you go a fast-paced scene, you don't want to spend too much time giving lots of descriptions. You know, you need the scene to be to move. You know, if it's a fight, a battle scene, it needs to be fast. Right, well. So over the years, you've learned, you've gotten better at this thing called writing. As I was reading Dreadthorn's Arianta, I thoroughly was immersed into the tale of this world. Now, what's really unique is that you did a great job of introducing someone into your world, even though they're picking up the second book in the series. And this, dear listener, is available on Amazon.co.uk or wherever books are sold. So make sure you go ahead, love my sister, and get your copy today. But before we delve into this particular book, I want want people to know more about the world of race. Tell us about it. Okay. Um, there, it's not like a... Uh, they, their history is nothing like ours. Uh, it's 3,000 years before the stories. And there was a, a war. 
we have uh, I have a, um, a race called the First Ones, who are essentially angels. And the idea was that they were on this planet to keep an eye on a new race that had, had been allowed to spread on it. Uh, and they have what I call a contagion of, ins of violence breaks out, infects all of them, and they end up in war. The heart, one half of the angels still loyal to the Lord of Light, another half of the angels rebelling. And at, at the end of this war, the, uh, the, the ones who are loyal to the Lord of Light have won, but they've wiped out most of the inhabitants of the planet who they were supposed to be protecting. So the Lord of Light takes the survivors and makes them human for a, a, a while. They, they, they live a human life, and their children become the guardians. They have some of the angelic powers given to them, and their job is to, because there is a survivor from the rebels who is in shake, so it's still with this disease, and he's imprisoned and quarantined basically under ice. Over, to, over the next centuries, a group of people start living near him and are affected by him and they are infected and they become his followers and they are the antagonists for the first seven books. And they're constantly trying to make everybody... They think that this survivor, this angel, is the real God and that the Lord of Right is the usurper. And so the uh, guardians are protecting the ordinary people from them and from other creatures that have because of the the war of magic left things warped there are creatures that are very dangerous there are dragons there are creatures that suck the heat out or turn you into snow and um, yeah things like that not a good day if you get turned into snow not a good day i have plans before that moment happens so I like the richness of your world. I love how you take a spin on various biblical narratives, um, extra biblical or not. And I think this is the strength of um, people who understand the art of storytelling. Because um, even though you have some biblical elements in there, they're not quite overt. And because they're not quite overt, and I like the word you use, the unchurched can read them without feel like as if they're being sermonized and yeah. so we've had the first seven books of the world of race and now we're into a spinoff which is the reciters of candor and the first book of the reciters of candor is called the rise of Ish Ish Ishfallon. yeah that's the first book and this is the second book dress forms arianta yeah. Ar arianta I'm, I'm missing up the words see i didn't create this language Joan did. So she's better at <laughs> she's better at saying these names than I am. And she does this she does create a language for her world and that just adds that immersive quality to it. I used to think that it was crazy for someone to create a language for their own books, but you really start to understand how much adding these little small details creates a greater reader readership with the reader. Is that, is that the right word I want to use? Yeah. It just creates a more tactile part of, of the world building and lets you know that you're trying to let the reader know this is different from anything you've ever known. Now, yeah. I may trip over the word spellings <laughs> and, and pronunciations, but, you know, I really appreciate that level of detail you put into the story. So when we get to the second book, The Dresswords Arianta, we are following a gentleman who has been enslaved. Now he's being asked to help. So that's where the story takes place. And again, you don't have to read the first book in the series to pick up on it because 
Joan effortlessly leads us there. But we have some interesting characters going on here. You have different races of people um, here. So tell us about these races and how they at, interact with the overarching plot. Um, well, okay, you, you've got the uh, the people of the original books are on the continent of Ray, um, and they are all uh, dark-skinned and that's the entire continent. We, um, they're now on Pandar. The continent of Pandar, the inhabitants are Caucasian. Um, and you've got the, the bad guy, what's well, the bad You've got, um, there's four cool groups really, even more. There's going to be even more with book, the next, next book. So you've got the Raytheans who are dancing, you've got the Kandari who are Caucasian. You've got, um, the Jantu who are the, were the antagonists of the original story, who are albino because they live in the far north, they live in caves. They serve the um, uh, the Shadowbringer, who, who's not really big on um, power. He, he thinks he, he, he likes things to be just very, very pale. Uh, that's just my words. Um, go figure. Right? Say go figure. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I try not to make too big a thing of, of the races because I know it's a, it can be a very um, tricky, sticky subject. Um, but uh, in their world, there is there is some racism. Uh, the Xantu, uh, I mean, Puk Cherix, for example, who's one of the antagonists of the original stories. And he's, I mean, you, you, he was the, uh, he's, he's an antagonist in this book. Um, he's spent, he had a lot of problems as a child because he's got brown eyes. Um, and that's something that's just, yeah, he's he's experienced a lot of racism, racist comments as he's been growing up because of that, and that's one of the reasons he's such a horrible person. He's yeah, he's he's had to be the worst that he can be in order to build thrive in his culture, which which uh, worships basically evil. So you already worship evil, and then because you're different, you have that prejudice against you. And I'm glad you didn't make a big deal about the races, because I would like to think that this world doesn't have the same problems we have. (laughs) So um, you will have that prejudice. I think that just exists no matter what. You could be in a homogenous society and have prejudice against people, you know. So. I love that you did that. And I remember that was a big deal back in the day, but thankfully I don't think it's as big as a deal as it used to be, which is good here. Now, here in the Candor, uh, the Reciters of Candor, you have different factions working together. And these different factions um, play an important role in getting Sherex to to where he needs to be because they've asked him for a favor yeah. and this favor that they're asking to is one of the biggest ones ever because when he when they first ask him he's like bawling laughing he's just like almost tears are coming out of his eyes he's laughing so hard so tell us about these different factions in fact well Cherix is one of the Jantu. they worship the the um the shadow bringer who is the the sick angel who thinks he's god and you know five years earlier they've had this massive war between the followers of the Lord of Light and Cherix's people. And Cherix was one of the commanders. He was actually, actually, no, he was the commander. And and he got captured uh, in book one of his series. Uh, and so what I wanted to do with this story was to have a something slightly different so that the enemies of the first seven books now have to work together against a mutual threat that's threatening both of them, both of their, their lands, which is 
the recyclers coming across the land of Kandar. Um, it's a kind of different in some ways because although I've got antagonists, the people who are actually the threat aren't evil. They are. They they it, it's kind of like them. They're a different denomination of the followers of the Lord of Light. So and they think they're right. So but then they're threatening everybody else. So I wanted to have enemies having to work together against a mutual threat. But I also didn't want the new threat to just be bad guys. I wanted something Sometimes to... the new threat can just be change and a new understanding and a new grasp of things. And that can be threatening. That can definitely be threatening. It's yeah. almost, it's a social, it's like a commentary on, on the world as you know it, because not everyone who is a threat to your knowledge of things is always bad. It's sort of like, and you're very, you have been very ambivalent when it comes to this whole AI thing. I think you've had a very neutral stance on it. Um, but I've, I've quite, I mean, in previous years, I, I enjoyed playing with the AI as it's, started getting going, the AI art and what have you. But uh, looking at it this year, I can really see why, especially if it's now getting into AI writing, uh, and it's come out that it's been sampling things without copyright permission and what have you. And I don't really understand entirely how it works, so I don't necessarily know for sure, certain how the rights and wrongs will play out. I know there are court cases. Um, but I think I think it has a place. You could, it could be a very useful tool used correctly, but it's not being used correctly. I'm seeing AI books showing up on Amazon where people have got AI to write a book on, say, mushroom identification. But some of the identifications are wrong. And if your book is... If someone buys that and they identify deadly poison mushroom as something edible, you can have someone dead. I, I think it's, it, it's rushing past far too fast. They need, it needs far more checks about um, copyright. They need to sort the copyright things out. I think it could be very, very useful tool if they can get through this copyright issue and sort it out so that it's not impinging on other people's work. There needs to be a place for people to be imaginative and to do I also think, though, that what could happen is that AI will start to become the same all over because AI creates things based on stuff it's been fed. So the things it's made already look kind of like the things it's, it's crossing its database. And then it puts its new things into its database. But what could happen, I think, is that more and more the, the the percentage of things in the database that have been created by AI are likely to become closer and closer and more and more similar to each other. So you could actually end up with AI will just produce the same thing every single time. And uh, then which, you're like, okay, that looks like AI. And so, and then they also they also talked about how AI, um, because at first you were feeding it information that was original, and then what? after it quote-unquote, updates or masters the original, and then they take the AI-fed information and then use that AI to train other AI. And then something weird starts to happen where it starts to break down. So you think at first you get a bowl of fruit, next thing you know you get, you know, broken glass. And you're like, that's not the bowl of fruit I asked for. So 
there's going to be a learning process. It is a disruptive technology. It is useful. I won't lie. There have I have used AI for things related to the podcast, like I need graphics or something like that. It is mm-hmm. useful to get what you need. Um, but like you said, there is a very fine line between letting AI take away our jobs and our, our expressions as mm-hmm. artists. And I recently heard a, it was a great cover, Joan. It was Frank Sinatra doing yeah. Billie Jean by Michael Jackson. Okay. And the AI, it was an AI cover. The AI sang as Frank Sinatra, and the person who uploaded the video did all the music as a crooning song. And it was so convincing, it was scary. Like, if I was born in the year 2023 and I heard Frank Sinatra sing Billie Jean, I would have no reason to believe that wasn't right. And that's one of the scarier aspects of AI. Now, do I think it's going to turn into the overlord? People are thinking that. I don't know if that's going to happen because then if we have an EM field or if we turn off the electricity, it's gone. So, you know, you know, there are checks and balances. <laughs> what's more likely to happen in the long run is that it will, it will be devastating for a lot of careers in the short term. Yeah, for sure. I think what's likely to happen in the long run is we end up, because this has happened so many times in history. And so that's why I'm an archaeologist. Or I did study history. This sort of thing has happened so many times. Someone comes up with a technology that does something faster, not as well, but okay and cheaper. And so a few hundred years ago, women who used to make their livings hand-spinning wool, suddenly you had machines that could do it. Most of those were out of work, but some of them... I mean, now people who spin get premium rates for hand-spun artisan wool, but most things you buy are made out of artificial things that die on a machine. Shoes. Yeah, who wears craft-made shoes anymore? Because machines can do it cheaper. When those machines first came out, cobblers were out of a job. So I think it's one of those things that's it's happened so many times, it will be, unless we do get on top of it, unless we can control it, a lot of people will be out of work. It will be devastating. And in the long run, there will be a niche. It will end up being a niche. People who do it things by hand, it'll be artisan, it'll be craft. They may even get, you know, command higher prices. But most people will be getting all the cheap stuff. So there is something to that. And I actually, my solution was, because some people said, well, I can write using this AI. I said, but you're not a writer. And someone said, well, you're trying to be superior. And I don't believe I'm being superior. I just know it took a long time to learn how to write, to develop my style and develop the way I tell a story. And for you to take that and say, well, I wrote a story. No, you didn't. You had a computer do it. And so there's a lot going on. It's a very contentious issue. Like even if you talk about it among certain circles, it can turn into like uh, (laughs) just – you can just imagine the argument that happens, and there are some people who won't even work with you if you use any form of AI because they're very passionate about their particular stance on it. And I am of the opinion that, of course, I don't want AI to take anyone's jobs. Of course, I don't want AI to take anyone's creativity that we do, like we're writers. Um, 
But we'll see. God's will. And I like how we're – I know we kind of went off track, dear listener, with the yeah. whole AI thing, but I was just using that example as is it a threat or is it something that we can work with? And so in your book, Candar, you know, they eventually will discover whether or not this threat is the threat that they mean for it to be. So you got this book. Um, do you have another one planned in this particular series? Yes, I'm intending it to be a trilogy, and I want to keep it to a trilogy and not let it go to the fourth book. Um, or seven. Yeah. I've written about half of it. Uh, I've, I've worked out, I know roughly what's going to happen in the end. There's a bit in the middle I haven't quite worked out. The thing is, I know why the, 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 the basis set up is these, these Kandaran reciters are spreading ants in reef, and the ants grow mushrooms, and the mushrooms block magic. And that's the threat. Uh, and I know what this is. I know why. I don't really want to say details because that's a bit of a spoiler. Yeah, no spoilers. Yeah. Uh, so, but yes, I'm about halfway through um, what should be the final part of the story, uh, where there's, I think, the one, um, the book that I'm, pub- that I'm about to publish, um, Dread Thorns, at the end of that. They've crossed Kandar and they are about to go into Erebus, the next the next continent. So uh, I, I, in this one, I've split them up. Then some of them are in different places, not exactly where they expected to be, and chucked a few more uh, trouble problems at them. And uh, there's bit, there's a little bit more with Cherix and Tengian, uh, who are now t- alone together, um, and have just rescued a baby dragon. Uh, <laughs> So yes, there is a third one coming, and that should complete the story. I really hope that it does, because if I have to go to a fourth book, I will need a fourth book cover, um, which is always annoying when you've got three book covers already sorted. Uh, don't really want a fourth. Like, I was fine with this. We were good. I've already got it. And the thing about the writer mind, though, is that sometimes your stories do take on a life of their own. Look, I just... <laughs> And there's nothing you can do about it because this story wants to be told in this fashion. And it goes back to my point about AI and humans. Humans are inspired. AI is updated. And inspiration comes because we, our stories are colored by our life experiences, by our beliefs, by the things that we see. That's why a lot of writers are saying, be careful. You may end up in a book (laughs) because if you do something that I love or you tell me a story or say something, you'd be surprised how many times authors are inspired by the world around them, oh. by life experience. Like you can call upon your your profession as an archaeologist to help flavor your world. You can also call upon your skill set. You can also call upon your personal um, things you've dealt with over the years. Not saying that every book is going to have you in it per se, but you will have that colored your stories. And that's where AI would never understand. It can imitate, but it cannot feel yeah, the art of soul. Mm-hmm. I think if AI was writing this story, it would be very different because this isn't this trilogy isn't a classic um, epic fantasy story because you probably got that from the book you read. It's This one, I'm trying to go more about the people and um, it is character driven. Your book is much more character driven than plot 
um, plot-driven, which neither is wrong. Sometimes the characters can really be quite entertaining in themselves, and then you want to hit them and call them names because they make stupid decisions or they say stupid things. And sometimes those can be just as invigorating as a plot-driven story. And I think in speculative fiction, there's this push for just the plot, the plot, the plot. And so exciting things happen. But sometimes you get these one-dimensional characters that aren't quite meeting up to the plot. But if you have a well-developed, well-rounded, and multi-dimensional character, that's just as compelling as a very exciting adventure story. So I think there is a line to be told when it comes to whether I'm going to make this more plot-driven or make this more character-driven. But I think, too, when you have a character-driven story, you use the opportunity to explore the human experience, even though it may be aliens on another world. And that's it. I mean, this sort of with Greta, um, a lot of what I'm exploring is um, somebody confronting his fears and trying to learn to even forgive someone who has done something so terrible to him as yes, had happened to Kenjin in the past. Uh, and I'm further exploring that in the next book. Um, a lot of it is about Kenjin learning how to come to terms with what happened to him in the back in the past and to be able to not just forgive, but even offer friendship to somebody who did that to him, even though they're not even remotely repentant. I do have a, a slight, you know, I have a bit of a, of a what's the word of grunt? Redemption arc. Yeah, mm-hmm. I don't want to make Terex a really a nice person, but the idea is that Tenjin is setting seeds that may not flourish within this book, that's kind of long-term aim for the for Cherix's future. Uh, so the, the loss of the book is about um, forgiveness and trying to cope with terrible things and, and doing what has to be done regardless. And because Engian believes things God has told him, it's not enough to just forgive. It has to make friends. And those make for very interesting stories. And I think the hardest person to forgive is yourself because there's no one else to blame, particularly if you are in the wrong of something. So lots of good stuff happening in this book, Dread Thorns Arienta, which is volume two of the Reciters of Candor series by Joan Lightning. Make sure you go ahead and pick up the first book in the series, The Rise is Fallen. Go ahead and pick that up today. And if you wanted to travel some more to the World of Wraith, go ahead and pick up the first seven books of the World of Wraith series. You're definitely going to enjoy it. The covers are absolutely phenomenal. They're very unique with bold, not I don't want to say bold colors, but very subtle colors. That's one thing you did differently with your books. They don't have that, it, they're bold and almost mystical. A lot of your covers have that mystical feel to them. Uh, well, this is partly, I think there's a lot of reasons why my books look a little bit different from, say, some of the standard epic fantasy. I've tried to go for some the same saturated colors, but there were several issues. First of all, your standard fantasy covers uh, for epic fantasy tend to be involve painted scenes from the from the book, and to get someone to do that is an awful lot of money, which I have on my heart. So I decided I had to try and learn to do it myself. I did buy a, get um, a custom cover for the first one, and then I had a lot of help 
um, on Facebook from some Facebook groups to produce the second one myself. And the third one, I actually got lucky that I won a promo from an artist and she did a lot of the art on that. And then she got some paid work and told me I could just use the art and do with it what I wanted. So I created my cover from, from that um, with no permission. And um, I did all of the rest myself. I kind of was learning how to do this. Uh, I'm not, usually I find my first attempt to cover is rubbish. But I mean, Facebook is just so much useful. The, the book, the, the groups of Facebook, and um, you get so much advice. And some of it's not always pleasant. And sometimes I argue with people to find out just how, just how good they're, you know, people will tell you something and they don't necessarily have the, the grounding for their opinion to be worth anything. So I will argue with them sometimes to find out. Just, <laughs> no. Well, you, you have a logical mind, though, Joan. You can't be an archaeologist and don't uh, analyze what people are saying. So if they're going to say something, you will push back on uh, it. So <laughs> no, I, wanted, I wanted covers that were a little, that would stand out. But there is also the thing that, one thing I have noticed is that covers that are standard in America aren't necessarily the same covers that will do well in the UK. Uh, we have slightly different tastes about things. Um, and also, a lot of fantasy covers, you know, they tend to be, there's the woman in a floaty dress with a sword. Uh, there's the guy with the six-pack with the sword. Um, they do tend to be white. It's just, let's, let's just put it out there. Especially in volumes, this is the first one, that my, most of my protect, my protagonists have dark skin. Yeah, they, uh, because of what, the way the story started being, um, something that someone asked, an African American lady actually asked me to, to sort of write this, um, with, uh, for, for some, for her initially. Um, and it's very difficult, I found, when I was first trying to get book covers, to looking, looking at the, uh, pre-made sites. All of the covers, almost all of them, the white, the white characters. Yeah, yeah. and that was has been something that people have talked about yeah. um, with that. And now they've gotten a lot better as some of the pre-made sites have gotten a lot better incorporating different ethnic groups and ethnicities. Yeah. Um, and then, again, here we go, AI. With AI now, you can really use the features and create that, but then people get mad for using it. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, what I have done... Again, I, uh, for one of the covers, or a couple of the covers, I used, I think, you know, for one cover, um, I used AI to create a face. And then I used the face as a basis for a painting. So I did the painting. It was a, it was painted, but I kind of used the AI face, so I made sure I got all of the features in the right place. So it gave it a realistic look, but it was still a painting. Uh, and I did that. That was before AI became so contentious. Uh, I think that's a fair use for AI is to use it as inspiration or as a to help you with something. But I can understand why people aren't happy with say just do an AI cover. Whoops, instant cover. Just use it because you you don't know what it's copied. And I and I also do want my books to have um, my covers to have that. You know unique appearance i mean the the covers oh, for the, sure mm -hmm. uh, I, I those are patterns uh, with the, the the covers for my new story the three the trilogy 
I created those patterns. I initially created them in something called Flame Painter, which is a sort of kaleidoscope painting tool. Really cool. Oh, yeah. And then I took that and I dumped them into GIMP and I changed the colors and I painted over it. And then I created some little blue anti-thing, ant-like creatures, and I stuck them on for one of them. And, um, you know, I, I've done... So I, I I have created all of those by hand. None of them are done by AI. And, you know, and I love it. And they're, they're absolutely stunning covers and very unique, in my opinion, very mm-hmm. unique. And like you say, you do want to stand out in a atmosphere and in a genre where covers sell your books let's just be honest uh, people are going to look at the covers now before they even read the title of the book sometimes you know but yeah. i am so glad joan as we get to the end of our show i'm so glad you were able to be with me today really a joy enjoyed having you on the show if people want to connect with you where can they find you online um well you can find me on facebook and i have a page for my books um uh, which is called uh, Guardians of Arita, obviously. Um, if you look on Amazon, if you, you, know, you look for Joan Lightning, you will find my books, all of them, most of which are the epic fantasy books. There's one, Christian Supernatural and novella, and there's also one non-fiction that's my grandfather's letters home from World War Two. Uh, but I don't really have... I have as a web page, I did start a blog some years ago, but to be honest, I suck at blogging. <laughs> uh, let me just check my um, Facebook page. Yeah, Guardians of Wraith is the title. Um, Wraith is spelt R E Y T H. And so, uh, it, well, you, you, you can find me fairly easily on Facebook, I think. I hope. <laughs> uh, no, I love that. I love that. Uh, uh, where I've got this before I lost the Zoom. There we are, there's the Zoom. <laughs> um, I've got a lousy memory. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're fine. You're fine. So, Joan, I want to thank you so much for being with me on the show today. Really right. enjoyed having you. Can't wait to have you back and have you back real soon. Yeah, and uh, yeah, great to have been here. And uh, I hope people enjoy the books. And uh, this time, if anybody really, really, really wants to discuss with me, about why I use the words magic. I'd really appreciate it if you contacted me personally rather than jump off Parker. <laughs> oh, yeah. we Hopefully we won't have that problem, though. But, Joan, thank you again, and thank you for being with me. To our listeners today, we were talking to Joan Lightning. She is the author of the new hot-off-the-press release, Dread, Throne, Dread Thorns, Arianta, which is book volume two of the Reciters of Candor series. If you want to read the first one, read The Flowers of Fallen. That is available on Amazon.co.uk or wherever books are sold. Go ahead and get your copy today. Thank you so much for being with me for this edition of The Right Stuff. I'm the Queen, Parker J, and you have a wonderful, absolutely glorious, blessed day. <laughs>